Good morning, everyone. Wish there was something around here to do. <laughs> well, a busy morning, a blessed morning with a baptism here at Faith and uh, all kinds of other great things going on. We're going to be taking a look at Proverbs chapter 5, and we see this theme that has been developed in a minor way, hinted at more or less up until this point, start to come into its fullness. And that is this idea that as the father is speaking to his son, he has in mind that his son would be betrothed to the woman who is wisdom rather than the woman who is foolishness or wickedness, one and the same. Before we jump into the text, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we've wrapped up chapter 4 and wrapped up the sixth address to a son, recognizing the imagery of the body that Solomon uses here, that the fullness of the body would be given over to the ways of wisdom. And here then, in chapter 5, verse 1, we turn to the seventh address to a son. Again, this is 7 of 10. And we're going to see familiar themes, but also themes deepened. The first verse shows a familiar theme. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. So it is once more a call to actively engage in the receiving and gaining of wisdom, common to the way that Solomon speaks, common to the way our Lord himself speaks. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Now again, tying this in with the themes we've seen heretofore, the major theme especially, that Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This wisdom has passed from the Lord to the Father and is being passed from the Father to the Son. So we, of course, live in a day and age in which many people, if they don't outright deny that there is such a thing as truth, they at least live like they do. And what we see here then is a claim of objective truth, this truth at the same time belongs to God and thus is passed to the Father and the Father calls it my understanding and this would be rightly understood as an objective wisdom, an objective understanding, an objective truth that he is passing down. He has grasped hold of this from the Lord and has received it as his own. I don't mean to belabor the point, but in this day and age, it is helpful for us to wrap our heads around the foundational nature of truth, that God is truth, what he says is true, 
And as we, and, and really the path of discipleship, being a student of the word, is to conform ourselves to the truth. To use our postmodernistic language to make God's truth our truth. Because that, in fact, is the truth. And anything contrary to God's truth would be a lie or a deceit, would be foolishness or wickedness. So it helps us to understand this, I think, in a very fundamental way, a way that really, in truth, goes all the way back to Genesis, where, of course, you have one voice from God saying, do not eat of it, and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And there's but one other voice, and that voice is saying, you won't die. God, did God really say? And calling into question what he said, flat out denying what he said, that voice is the voice of the serpent. So there is one singular voice of truth, the voice of God, and all who join their voices to his voice, saying the same thing. And really the whole cacophony of voices contrary to that are in fact but one voice, the voice of the serpent. You can see this expressed visually in Revelation 12, where the great dragon, the ancient serpent of old, has been cast down from heaven to earth. And here he pursues the woman who gave birth to Christ and her offspring. In other words, he pursues the church. And he does so by leashing out of his dragon mouth, his serpent mouth, a flood of waters. A flood of deceit. So the weapon in Revelation is almost always found in the mouth. And there's no exception here where the weapon of the dragon is the flood that comes forth from his mouth. So that is where we find ourselves. We touched on this with that great and aptly named book uh, by Rod Dreher, of course, quoting Solzhenitsyn, Live Not by Lies. Fundamentally, the battle of the universe from start to finish, from the time of our fall, where we departed from the word of God and believed the word of the serpent, has been to turn away from the word of the serpent, turn away from the flood of lies toward the one voice that is true. Does that make sense? Now, I think that this is the proper frame for understanding all of history. There are other frames by which you can understand all of history, and they're biblical. But this is one way in which you can frame and understand all of history, that every single contention recorded in the Old Testament or the New in the history of the church to our own day, is a contention over truth versus lies. So again, if we think of that in terms of church history, we can see the truth of Christ's divinity immediately attacked. In the way that Satan works, it's almost always spiritual judo. So he presents one error, and then as men swing away from that error, He uses their own momentum to push them into the opposite error. And so there's a denial of Christ's humanity. 
Once the war for truth has been waged and won, Christ is truly man, truly God in one person. How does this fit in with the Trinity? And that debate rages on. But it's one over truth and one over lies. From there, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? From there, what is the role of the will in conversion or salvation? From there, the mediator that is Christ begins to be replaced by prayer and mediation of saints and the use of relics and finally, ultimately, the purchase of salvation via indulgences and so on and so forth. There are other errors along the way, other smaller battles along the way, but as you track through church history, it is always a battle of truth versus lies. And very frequently, truth is in the minority. And very frequently, truth appears to have the weakest ground, or the weaker ground. But it endures and it abides. That's part of the story. That's part of the foolishness of God being wiser than the wisdom of men. It ultimately prevails. It's that rock upon which all other things break. From the medieval period onto the Reformation, then it's a truth over how we stand before God. Do we stand justified by grace through faith on account of Christ and apart from works? Or is there something we have to add to it? Do your best and let God do the rest. No. So it's a contention for the gospel, specifically soteriology, how it is that we're saved, and we make our stand with the truth. Now, what you'll notice is that none of these battles really go away. They're always there, but in the background. As time marches on, other errors emerge. Enlightenment and rationalism. And that's much of what we're dealing with today. And then Culturally, the rejection of these things, and the church finds herself in this maelstrom, but largely what has emerged is an attack on humanity, what it means to be a human being, and an attack on the ordering of creation, which begins with a new genesis, a black, dark, false genesis, but a mythological story upon which a false religion will be based. And that is that we were brought to life, not by life and light, but by death and sex. And that's the story of evolution. How we progressed from the mud and were nothing but mud. Not precisely accurate, I understand, but... The rhetoric, nonetheless, is also true in its own broader and more profound way. Having evolved from monkeys, we're just monkeys. So then, let us act like monkeys. And if we can create our own reality, let us create our own reality. And so then, today, it is a war on reality. It's a war on biology. And we can see these things take shape then in many and various concrete ways that have to do with the human being, whether it's God creating man and woman in his image, nothing else, just those two, or whether it's God giving woman to man in holy matrimony through which procreation occurs, nothing else, 
or any of the other concomitant and extending tangents from this reality that we face in our own day and age. But it is important for us nonetheless to see that the battle we're fighting is one over truth and lies and will continue to be the case until Christ returns. Okay, so that helps us contextualize ourselves within a broader history and start to see things going on in our culture for what they are. And to take that very clear and not overly simplistic, just simply true statement that there is truth that comes from God and error that comes from Satan, lies that come from Satan. So again, as we see this, we want to track this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This wisdom comes from from God to the Father. Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. The Father becomes a possessor of God's wisdom and passes that on as the true inheritance that he's giving to his Son. And that is most certainly the case. We should think about this as if we're parents or if we're grandparents looking at our grandchildren or if we're young people looking to the next decade and saying, I'm likely to be a parent in the next decade or two. We want to have this in mind that the inheritance we pass down that's more valuable and more precious than any inheritance of mammon is the inheritance of the wisdom of God. This battle over truth and error in all its many forms throughout the centuries up into the present. That's what we are passing on. That's what we are contending for. We want to make sure that our children don't lose that inheritance of wisdom. All right, he continues on in verse 2 with the same sentence, that you may keep discretion, mazimat, discretion or purpose, you may keep purpose, and your lips may guard or keep knowledge. Okay, we've got a lot of redundancy and parallelism poetry going on here, so we don't need to make too fine of distinctions. But it is um, discretion or purpose, and it is um, wisdom bestowed to the ear that then finds its home within the lips, and the lips may guard this and speak it forth. And it does have to be guarded, as we've seen, precisely because this is a matter of profoundest spiritual warfare. The keeping of knowledge, the speaking of knowledge, the not letting knowledge go away or be taken away from you by the one who is the liar, the deceiver. All right, now we morph into that theme of which I spoke at the beginning of the class. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. All right, if you drop down to the study note in your Lutheran service, or Lutheran service, Lutheran study Bible, too many LS and Bs in the uh, current lineup, you'll see that at uh, verse 3, 
about three lines down where it says forbidden woman. This is literally strange woman. And the editors offer this translation or interpretation. This is a woman who does not belong with the one she seduces. She is foreign and therefore forbidden to him. She is also living outside the moral boundaries God has set for his people. All right, now I don't think we need to work too hard at identifying um, this woman because she really takes all shapes and forms, but the language would lend someone to think in immediate context of someone who does not belong to God's covenant people. Remember, they're under the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And, well, this actually goes back to an earlier infidelity. Do you remember when Joshua was given to lead the people into the promised land? Generally speaking, what were they told to do with the inhabitants of that land? Wipe them out. They're God's people. He can do with them as he wants. That's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that these are not nice, wonderful, happy little pagan barbarian communities. Such things never exist. These are people fallen and degraded and sinful to highest measure. God, in any case, tells Joshua and the people they need to wipe out the promised land so that they can have a fresh start there. Do the people do this? No. Why not? Any guesses? Because they're so merciful? Not really. <laughs> What's that? Absolutely. So, wealth. We can take them as slaves. We can take their stuff. We can use them profitably. We are stronger with them than without them. And so they disobeyed God largely on pragmatic grounds. And these pagan peoples grow up in the midst of Israel, and they're never wiped out. The the book of Judges is the example of the disaster that occurs recurrently when these people in various pockets continue to rise up and persecute, sometimes gaining the upper hand over God's people in their own promised land and persecuting them. Okay, what else happens? Intermarriage. And with the intermarriage, boy, how is it in our own day? When a Christian marries an unbeliever, is it likely the unbeliever and his whole family convert, or is it more likely that the believer slowly drifts away? Yep, the latter. And so also was the case then. And especially their temptation, in some ways it resonates with today, but their temptation and the temptation of, of so much of ancient paganism was that it was allowed to be syncretistic. You don't have to get rid of Yahweh. Just bring Yahweh along with us as we worship all the other gods and Yahweh too. That's where Aaron with the golden calf, do you remember what they called the golden calf? Yahweh. So it's always a syncretistic intermingling. And the great reformers, Josiah, Hezekiah, 
many of the prophets of the Old Testament period, are seen to be intolerant and loveless because they put forward the exclusivity of faithfulness to Yahweh. Get the other idols out of the temple. So there's great allure for God's people to marry strange women and worship strange gods. They can simply bring Yahweh along too. And that works in the favor of the evil one, the father of lies who's always at work, age to age. All right, so that's probably what's chiefly in view when we see the forbidden woman is the woman outside of the covenant people of Israel. But there is some debate about this. And there are some scholars that, and maybe we'll see some hints of this as it goes along, who see this rather as an apostate Hebrew woman. So as a woman who's not saying, hey, let's, let's go to your temple this Sunday, let's go to my temple next Sunday. <laughs> but as an apostate Hebrew woman saying, hey, let's go to the temple Let's offer our sacrifices. That's all God really wants. Let's put in our quarter and do whatever we want to do. He's good at forgiving. We're good at sinning. Perfect. And so she becomes the seductress and the temptress as a daughter of Zion in form, but not in substance. Now, at the beginning of this, I said it's not necessary that we get too specific. Could she be both and? Absolutely. She is the false and forbidden woman, and she takes myriad shapes. But at the original time of the writing, those are the shapes she would have taken. Here in this distant pagan land, where we're in our own kind of Babylonian captivity as the church scattered around America, um, we can resonate with the many and various forms that the forbidden woman might take. As is always the case, evil appears to be good. At first, at least. Again, we have uh, contemplated this, that binding yourself to God's word and God's commandments appears to be narrow and enslaving, while evil is, hey, you can go do whatever you want. You're free. But that freedom is only apparent. As soon as you're into it, you realize it's a profound bondage, a bondage to your own fallen self and the fallen world. It's not free at all. And the same thing is true with the presentation of evil. It always appears to be sweet and right and pragmatic and wise. Thus, her speech is, um, or her, um, excuse me, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Sweet and smooth is the presentation of evil. And that's why we can very frequently be seduced by it, at least up front. Now, while this is how she presents herself, again, it's not at all the case. Thus, verse 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Just as wisdom, the wise woman, leads down a path, she calls out in the streets and leads down a path and so too and leads to a house, so too this woman. Her feet go down to death. That is to say, that's where her path 
leads. If you follow her footsteps, pursuing her, she's going to take you to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Uh, generally, Sheol is the sphere of the dead, and but here heavily hinted in, toward um, hell in that sense, separated from God and his people. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And so that is a part of uh, evil that we see as well, is that evil doesn't have to be self-aware, and most often it's not. So this is plain and evident, I think, when you look at like politicians in our land. They, for the most part, think they're doing the right thing. And they couch their language as if they were doing the righteous thing. That's why it's not like, I'm pro-slaughtering babies in the womb. Nobody says that. I'm pro-choice. Isn't choice a good thing? It is. Isn't a woman's body a good thing? It is. So her body, her choice. And so it's always... Its intentions are good, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions and or the skulls of bishops, depending upon who you're reading. (laughs) But evil always presents itself as being wise and sweet and smooth, and sometimes evil is so self-deceived It's exactly as verse 6 says, her ways wander and she does not know it. We also see in the preceding clause, she does not ponder the path of life. Luther, and I'd have to go digging to find out exactly who else is on board with him among the church fathers, but Luther does this and... um, and some others. My brain is too addled right now to come up with a name. Say that there are in fact two kinds of human beings, and it doesn't, and it's really interesting here, because from Luther's standpoint, he's talking about a, a time and a place in which virtually everybody is baptized and everybody is at least ostensibly a Christian. So his words don't quite translate to us um, accurately, but he he says that there are a majority of people who live their life as nothing more than cattle. That is to say, they have their heads down. They're not contemplating the heavens. They never contemplate the heavens. They don't contemplate their mortality. They don't contemplate their beginning or their end. They have their heads down and their mouths are consuming grass and all the further their eyes go is to the next clump of grass. And their entire life is lived, head down, moving from one clump of grass to another. And I think that that's, yeah, so don't be that way. Don't be bovine, be divine. But this is, sorry, I'm becoming old. Getting Getting the okay dad. But I think that that gives us a nice visual picture for the way um, of this forbidden woman who is obviously 
inimical and turned away from Yahweh, turned away from his wisdom, turned away from the path of life. And here's the key. She does not ponder the path of life. This is, this is in our culture, the person who is just moving. I mean, what are you living for? So I can go to the baseball game on the weekend and have a beer and then, um, you know, go back to work and, and maybe, maybe afford the next iPhone when it comes out. Do you need one? No. But they've written in forced obsolescence, so I have to have one. So, and you, you start to see a whole world that is led by people who exploit this, who want nothing more than to have people underneath them who are just moving from one pleasure to another at exactly the pace they dictate based on financial policy and based on forced obsolescence and based on scare tactics and fear-mongering and, oh, looks like we'll need two years to slow the spread and so on and so forth. If they can keep people like this, they can keep and retain their control. But then furthermore, people like this are denuded of their very humanity. And that's Luther's point. They become sub human. They become animalistic. Humans are meant to contemplate God and, in, and the path of life. And instead, like cattle, they're just contemplating the next pleasure and moving from one pleasure to another and then the slaughterhouse. And Luther's not pulling this from thin air. James talks about this way and he's relying on a psalm that what is taking place amongst the wealthy of the world who are just so consumed with consumerism and the next thing that they can't even look up to God or anything else, they are being fattened like cattle as in the day of slaughter. So an image there of final destruction. Thus, when we hear wisdom... That glorious, bright, beautiful woman crying out in the streets, we see why. That we might avoid destruction, that we might regain our humanity, that in becoming students of God, we are regaining that image of God with which we were originally created and our true and full human dignity. Make sense? Okay, please. Uh, Yeah, as... Solomon's son, uh, why should I pay attention to this when he's got dozens of uh, foreign wives who live outside the moral boundaries God has uh, set for his people? That's why you should. Because he's been there and done that. (laughs) So, uh, both positive and negative example, but that's really the strength of why, um, you know, if Ecclesiastes was written by Job, it wouldn't have half the impact. What did Job know of having all the women he wanted and having all the wisdom he wanted and having all the wealth he wanted and having all the power he wanted and having all the fame he wanted? Job knew none of that. So what good would it be for Job to tell you, oh, yeah, 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 none of that stuff's any, it's not fulfilling. But a character like Solomon comes and says, I've had it all and I'm still not full. And that's really the nature and synopsis of Ecclesiastes is you can have it all and more and it's not enough and it's not right and, there's, and it all, in fact, is empty and vain and meaningless. The ultimate point of Ecclesiastes being that we are designed for God and will be fulfilled only in God. 
Okay, now that punch is harder when it's somebody like Solomon who has all of these things. And in a similar and, and parallel way, we can learn positively and negatively from Solomon's authorship of this. In the first place, Solomon prayed that God would grant him a, it's frequently translated as wisdom, but it's really a discerning ear or a discerning heart. Okay, that would be a, maybe a more accurate translation. So we see God blessing Solomon in this unique way, even to the point where the Queen of Sheba comes and visits him, to say nothing of the whole world being drawn into him. It's a type and foreshadowing of Christ. A greater than Solomon, a wiser than Solomon has come, and the whole world, as it were, flocks to him and continues to flock to him for his wisdom. Okay, so that's in the first place positively why we should listen to this. Um, God gave him supernatural gift of wisdom and discerning, and that's evident here. But secondarily, negatively, we can see that Solomon in his own life, in many and various ways, turned aside to this seductress. How much more then does this punch home that the very person who penned these words can fall afoul of these words and can fall off the path of these words? And that should punch home because we can't be laissez-faire in regard to our attitude. If the very author fell away from these things, how much more should we cling to them? Furthermore, and no one knows the ultimate fate of Solomon, but I think there's good reason to believe he's in heaven. That aside, we can gain from this an understanding that even one as wise as Solomon can fall away. And even with the egregious nature of that fall, because it's ramped up, the more you know the more you've been given, the more will be expected, the more you know to fall away is that much greater of a fall, that there's still redemption for one like Solomon in Christ Jesus. And there's still that wisdom by which one can come back from the path that leads to death, presuming one comes back before it's too late, heed that call and voice of wisdom crying out in the streets and return and be redeemed and forgiven and brought back into the treasures of of God's grace in and personified in this righteous woman of wisdom. So I think there's a lot to be gained there, a ton of mileage to be gained from the fact that it is Solomon penning this as opposed to somebody else. His character and his history make it all the more poignant and in many respects believable. And then I think too, um, you know, that... Um, wisdom, wisdom can studying wisdom obviously uh, makes one. You can't get very far in the pursuit of wisdom without humility, because you're going to see right away how stupid you've been. That's the problem, and nobody likes to be to feel stupid, and so you turn away from the study of wisdom and go where you are still stupid, but everybody's telling you you're smart. So that's where it's like better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to sit on the throne of the wicked or however the rest of that goes. What is that? Dwell in the house of the wicked. Yeah, thank you. Um, So the point being, better to be a fool studying wisdom 
and know you're a fool and know you're pursuing wisdom, know you've fallen from this path, but you're redeemed in Christ and you're going to continue to pursue this path, idiot though you are, and we all feel that way. We all look back on our lives and made huge, colossal blunders. And um, truth be told, like, hey, probably some colossal blunders still to come. Stay tuned, you know. But uh, we pray not, we fight against it, but that's the reality of the situation. So we know then that that's, you know, that's part and parcel of the pursuit of wisdom is you're going to feel stupid, you're going to get humbled, you're going to see all the places in which you've departed from wisdom. That's okay. This is a good pain, a healing pain. This is right and normal and how we should pursue. Don't go the easy way, the way of honey, the way of smooth oil, the way that says, oh, you're a genius. I think, in the, I think the kingdom of Satan is a lot like the Apple store. Everyone's a genius. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everybody's a genius and... At least that's the label, while in reality no one is. And that's the allure of the road to foolishness is, hey, you're smart. Just lick your finger, stick it up, see which way wind of culture is blowing. Take the majority way, follow them. You're wise, you're in. Your social media is getting a ton of likes. You're popular, you might get invited to do a TED Talk. And all the while you're from a biblical standpoint or perspective, you're walking the way of foolishness. So the way of foolishness is easy until the end. The way of wisdom is hard until the end. (laughs) And that's where, where, you know, would you rather suffer now and have eternity of joy or have joy now and eternity of suffering? That's where the, the sort of calculus or math, if you will, of wisdom, you know, again, if we just broaden out our perspective, if we stop munching the next patch of grass and we just look up, it's really that simple. So there is an exchange and a trade taking place, and this is everywhere articulated in the scriptures, that if we humble ourselves with he who was humbled on the cross, we will be exalted with him when he returns in glory. That's the project. So go for Good Friday now, knowing that Easter is coming. That's the project. That's the way of wisdom. It's hard. It's difficult. You feel like an idiot, but you keep going. And in the end, you're shown wise. Okay, that's the point. Whereas all the people who appear wise now will end up looking like fools for all eternity. Okay. Yep. Please. Oh, yep. Okay. Did you have a comment? Yeah. I Well, I did. Lots oh, of, yeah. Sorry. Lots I kept of going, ideas I? That, that sprang forth for me. Um, First off, I think we have an allergy to critical thinking. Mm. And and because of that, we take the easy way out. So the devil sounds seductive and smooth and other people, you know, it sounds really smooth. Um, it took me back also to when I used to be a fourth grade teacher. Connie was a second grade teacher. We taught side by side way long years ago. And... Um, the notorious word problem came up in fourth grade. I'm sure it comes in first grade now, you know, because everything gets rushed up. But the, the word problem in math. And I knew way back then, which is why then I went into mental health, that the stumbling block for fourth graders was the fear of the word problem. What words in there really matter and what are red herrings? So we worked a lot on critical thinking 
which is what we have such an aversion to, all of us all the time. We want the easy street. And so for that whole year, we did word problems together because we also don't want to be shown up like you were saying, you know, that we don't know, that we don't. It's scary to go off into the unknown and not know. And and so I tried to, with my children that were entrusted to me that year, we would just look at it and dissect the problems down for critical thinking. What are words we can get rid of? What are words that we... And you're showing us again, you know, it seems as if the devil keeps adding things to it, which make it so seductive to us. And yet when we keep reducing down to the basic truths and keeping our eye on that, we have a more clear sense instead of wandering, you know, as to what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. Anyway, a lot of all those thoughts came through when you were talking. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I was observing when you were speaking about culture, our culture, it seems that we have to fight for it because all of our, a lot of our children are being seducted by it. And when I look at what Solomon's written, it's almost like he's writing a memoir. Like, this, this is what you should do. This may not be what I did, but this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish, I wish with all my heart that the church could have a higher stake in our culture because it's slipping away and uh, as evidenced by someone I know who married a Catholic and I told him he's a godson and I said it's not going to be the same and he said oh no it's the same It'll, everything will be great everything will be great the kids were catechized they don't go to church they play games all weekend you know mm. and it's kind of breaking my heart so yeah. it, if you're unequally yoked it's going to ruin society. Yeah, yeah, it's a challenging thing to be sure. And uh, society isn't making it easy, and the religion of society is not like, hey, come over here and worship Zeus. It's the baseball game is Sunday at 9 a.m. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what fa- the call to false religion and the call to paganism, the call away from, wo- uh, from the woman that is wisdom to the forbidden woman. That's what it sounds like today. It doesn't say, hey, let's go to the temple prostitutes. It sounds like, hey, let's uh, stay up all night at the bars on Saturday. And then it's just so when it comes time to wake up for Sunday, there's no thought of it. Or, hey, let's go to the temple of Jupiter on Sunday instead of the house of God. No, that's not really what's happening today. But it's your kids' activities. And it is interesting because the, the coaches just say, that's what it is, and if you don't like it, you're out. And you want to know, know what all the parents do? Jump right in line. Now, what happens when the pastor says, well, if you don't come to confirmation, you can't get confirmed. That's the way it is. They don't care. So that's also what we're up against and this is where, like, a reclamation, I mean, again, judgment begins with the household of God, and is as important as it is for us to identify errors, quote-unquote, out there, maybe even more important, more incisive for us to identify errors within our own households, 
or within our own families and to work to correct those in a concrete way. How are you going to ponder the path of life? How are you going to be attentive to the word of wisdom or incline your ear to understanding if you're not there when the word of God is being preached this week? So that, I mean, if we want to do something and it's heavy lifting, it's hard work and there's going to be a cost, that's what we do. We seek to, we look at ourselves vocationally, what God has called us to do, what our station role in life is, and who can we influence and how can we influence them. That's putting this in concrete practice. If, particularly if we're going to see ourselves in the position of the Father looking to pass down the inheritance of wisdom. Okay, um, we're over time, so I'm very sorry. I know there are a couple of hands. If you want to write down your questions, I'm happy to take those, or your comments, I'm happy to take those next week as we delve back into this. The Lord be with you.